Hello, Next Picture Show listeners. Here's a friendly reminder that if you enjoy the Next Picture Show, you'll really enjoy getting more Next Picture Show by subscribing to our Patreon. You can unlock ad-free versions of the podcast for $3 a month and get bonus episodes on current TV, movies we don't cover on the podcast, and other topics for $5 a month. We just recorded bonus episodes on Haunted Mansion and Talk to Me, with much more to come. To subscribe to our Patreon, please visit patreon.com slash nextpictureshow. That's patreon.com slash nextpictureshow. Very difficult to keep the line between the past and the present. Do you believe that someone out of the past can enter and take possession of a living being? We may be through with the past, but the past is not through with us. Welcome to The Next Picture Show, a movie of the week podcast devoted to a classic film and how it shaped our thoughts on a recent release. I'm Scott Tobias, here with... Tasha Robinson. Our usual co-hosts, Keith Phipps and Genevieve Kosky, are off enjoying their stable, non-dysfunctional relationships, but they'll be fighting with us again soon, I'm sure. In the meantime, we brought in our good friend and longtime colleague from the AV Club and the Dissolve, Mr. Noel Murray. Noel, hello. Hello. How, how's your marriage to our other good friend and colleague, Dr. <laughs> Dr. Donna Bowman? <laughs> I mean, I thought it was fine, and then I watched these two movies, and now, <laughs> and now I'm wondering. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, well, these movies uh, are definitely both about making you uh, question everything you've settled for and maybe everything your partner's settled for. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> or is this, this kind of like, ah, I don't have a, I don't have an emotional terrorist in my, in my life. <laughs> so it's, it's, it's good. So, uh, you know, love triangles are common in the movies. Are you team Edward or team Jacob? Team Peta or team Gail? Team Jules or Team Jim. But the love triangles of this week's pairing are a little more uncommon in movies because they slide around the Kinsey scale a bit and deal with characters whose sexual proclivities do not fall on the straight and narrow, or the gay and narrow for that matter. <laughs> Tasha, what in the world am I talking about? I so rarely know. With his new movie Passages, American independent filmmaker Ira Sachs heads to Paris to teach the French a little lesson in menage a trois. Franz Rogowski plays a narcissistic German filmmaker who's already strained marriage to a British man falls apart when he has an affair with a young French woman. Rogowski's neediness and insensitivity are turnoffs, to say the least, but the film is about the mysteries of love and attraction, and how they can lead even reasonable people to destructive relationships. The nature of the love triangle in Passages calls to mind John Schlesinger's groundbreaking 1971 drama Sunday, Bloody Sunday, which also concerns a young bisexual man who's seeing two older adults of different genders simultaneously, a middle-aged Jewish man and a recently divorced woman in her 30s. So this week, we'll look at a week in the life of two tortured romances in Sunday Bloody Sunday. Then next week, we'll survey the emotional wreckage of passages. Stay tuned. We're free to do what we want. Other people often do what they don't want to do at all. A new film from the Academy Award-winning director of Midnight Cowboy. Sunday, Bloody Sunday. The press and everyone else is talking about Sunday, Bloody Sunday. Alexander Walker of the Evening Standard headlines the picture as Sunday, Brilliant Sunday. A most impressive achievement not to be missed, says The Guardian. A love story between three people. No! No! Yes, no! 
Don't go on to me like some possessive wife. I should never have said yes to this weekend. It is a deeply satisfying and often hilarious work of art, worth visiting more than once, says the Daily Express. Now tell me if you feel anything at all. That's the first line of John Schlesinger's Sunday Bloody Sunday, uttered by Peter Finch as Daniel Hirsch, a gay Jewish doctor examining one of his patients at his practice in London. It is, of course, a line that we're intended to read as more than literal. Feeling something is why the characters in Sunday Bloody Sunday are immersed in relationships that are flawed on their face. Is it better to have loved and lost than never to have loved at all? And even if love isn't quite the right word for any of them, maybe it's worth a little pain to ease their loneliness. The Oscar-nominated script for Sunday Bloody Sunday was written by Penelope Gilliatt, a film and theater critic who spent the 70s writing reviews at The New Yorker at the same time as Pauline Kael. In fact, Kale wrote an ambivalent review of the film, but generously credited most of its shortcomings to Schlesinger. Gilliatt's past experience as a novelist and short story writer informed her criticism, and it adds a sophisticated, notably adult quality to a film that quietly challenged social norms. The young object of desire for both of the older characters in the film is Bob Elkin, played by Murray Head, an attractive bisexual sculptor in his mid-twenties who doesn't seem to have any trouble dividing his time between the man and the woman who vied more desperately for his affection. Bob's two lovers, Daniel and Alex Greville, played by Glenda Jackson, are both close friends with a suburban academic couple in the suburbs named the Hobsons, and they alternate having dinner with the Hobsons on Sundays. Daniel and Alex know about each other and are not exactly resentful about the time the other gets to spend with Bob because they've resigned themselves to getting whatever love they can get out of him. Both are still hurting from past relationships. Daniel's former lover is a heroin addict who, in one scene, comes to him for a prescription fix, and Alex has been dealing with her divorce and some humbling aspects to her personal life. Lately, she's had to babysit Hobson's rowdy kids an assignment that's so challenging that she cannot intervene in time to keep the family dog from getting killed by a car. Though he and another writer, David Sherwin, were not credited for their extensive work on the script, Schlesinger had based Sunday Bloody Sunday around his own experience as a Jewish-English gay man and then enlisted Juliet to collaborate with him on the first draft. The credit issue turned bitter, but the script does have a distinct literary quality that does much to suggest the raw emotion underneath its reserved characters. For Schlesinger, the film was also an opportunity to address some of the criticisms directed at his previous film, Midnight Cowboy, which followed a naive Texas hustler in New York with sensitivity, but depicted his life and his sex work as desultory and alienating. Sunday Bloody Sunday is more sex positive. The film's inclusion of a passionate kiss between Peter Finch and Murray Head did its small part to destigmatize queer intimacy on screen. You could say that it walked so the passages could sprint. And there were no bad guys in this story. Bob seems to have negotiated the terms of these relationships in good faith, and he makes for excellent company when he's around. As he tells Alex in one scene, quote, I know you're not getting enough of me, but you're getting all there is. Schlesinger deploys some of the jarring flashbacks here as he did in Midnight Cowboy, drawing some insight into Daniel and Alex's past that have shaped them in the present. But the film is fundamentally reserved in a way that Midnight Cowboy was not. It covers a small, intense period in three people's lives, a transitional phase for all of them, and then it moves on. That's what happens when relationships don't work. You find your way through them, you learn from them, and you go forward. We'll talk more about it after the break. Mrs. Hackett. Mrs. Hackett, 
would you just try and do exactly what I said and then get in touch with me tomorrow, only if his fever hasn't gone down, otherwise ring me on Monday, right? Goodbye. Jesus Christ! I need a drink. I don't know why you put up with it. How long have you got? A while. Is Alex hating it up there? I bet Lucy's putting her through it. Why on earth did you go? Because she wanted me to. Because I wanted to. How the hell did you get away? So Sunday Belly Sunday was a groundbreaking film, as I said in the intro. But heavy is the head that wears the groundbreaking crown sometimes <laughs> because what might seem brow-raising in 1971 is perfectly common 50-plus years later. With that in mind, how did the film hold up for you, Noel Murray? Yeah, you know, I actually had never seen this movie before, which is surprising to me because I've seen a lot of John Schlesinger films and I've seen a lot of films from this era. Uh, I think like a lot of people, uh, because of the U2 song, <laughs> I assume that this is going to be a, a movie about the troubles. And when you picked it to go with Passages, I was kind of like, huh, interesting. I, I don't know the connection there, but okay. And then I watched the movie and of course I was like, oh yeah, obviously that's the connection. It's basically the same story where there's you know uh, uh, two guys and a, and, and a woman kind of all sharing romantic space together. I mean, it is definitely of its time, but I will say as somebody who watches a lot of old movies on TCM, uh, from across lots of different eras, uh, that's not a deal breaker for me. And so I really found, I wouldn't say that I loved this movie. I admired what Schlesinger and his screenwriters, uh, including Penelope Gilliatt, which we'll get into probably later on a little bit more about her and who she is, were trying to do here, which is kind of like a combination of the kitchen sink realism of the British cinema of the late 50s and early 60s, but updated to this kind of post new wave, French new wave, American new wave, where you're using the visual language of cinema to create something that's kind of novelistic. And so I really appreciated the the form of Sunny Bloody Sunday, even if I didn't necessarily groove with the story quite so much. But, uh, so that's my take. Yeah, it feels like, I mean, this movie may be of its time in some ways, particularly just the the pacing of it, which is very discursive. You know, it, it wanders in a lot of different directions. I don't get a real sense that there's a main character here. You know, we spend a lot of time kind of exploring the internality of the, the three main characters in ways that seem kind of unusual. And it just very much feels like a 70s film in terms of the the tone it takes. At the same time, it feels like it, it didn't just jump uh, past the era that started like bringing queer relationships to independent film. It jumped past that and into the point that people were looking for almost immediately when queer relationships started to come to films, which is the era where queer relationships can be seen as just as messy as straight relationships and, you know, just as as complicated instead of needing to be portrayed in some idealized way in order to not feel like they're denigrating uh, the entire idea of gay relationships. This is just <laughs> this, the storyline here feels like a, a story that we couldn't have gotten until like the late 90s in America in terms of how matter of fact it is about uh, queer relationships, uh, how it doesn't like lionize them or make them exceptional. It, it's just another form of relationship like so many other movie relationships, a dramatic one where everybody has problems and they're navigating them in in interesting ways. I'd never seen this film before either. 
there were points uh, where the the storytelling became like so slow and observational uh, that it, it kind of lost me. Um, I, I did not find this a gripping uh, experience as I was watching it. But every time I saw where those kind of like long, quiet, wandering passages were going uh, in terms of how it all fits together in a whole, I, I was pretty fascinated with this film. Yeah, I, I had reviewed this movie when the Criterion Edition came out back in the day, I think it was for, for AV Club, and had given it actually a semi, like a sort of a mixed, a positive review. But watching it this time, I liked it a whole lot more. And I think it's just becoming just, I think it was just kind of anticipating how the film was going to be put together with the, with the, with the you know, the, that it was going to be a little bit discursive. And also, you know, I think I came to appreciate, you know, that one of its really great qualities is, is its, proportionality uh, you know and, and its sense of reserve i mean it, it's giving you so much detail and in information about all of these all all three of these characters together and apart and it's doing it i think with with a tremendous amount of you know uh, of insight and and as you say it's kind of a, a matter of factness that's really re- refreshing but also it's not so reserved that you don't feel the emotions anyway so i, I appreciate that it feels to me just so uncommonly sophisticated not just not just for you know a a, a film uh, you know about a about the sort of love triangle we would would not have seen 1971 but if the film came out today i mean it would it wouldn't be that completely out of place i mean it would obviously there are certain elements of it that would be you you know not as (laughs) risque but like in terms of (laughs) the relationship dynamics between these characters all that felt real and evergreen in a way you know and i think that that you know a situation like uh the one that peter finch's character finds himself in you know where it's just he's just closeted basically and there's nothing that's just the way it's going to be i mean people that that's still a thing people are still closeted still people still have to kind of like you know compartmentalize their lives that way so that felt contemporary in its way as well so i i had a lot of um appreciation for what schlesinger and juliet too pulled off you know because juliet i think was brought in because she was she's a not she was a novelist she was a short story writer and i think you can i think those literary qualities are really a big part of what sets this film apart I think if this film came out today, the controversial elements wouldn't be around the bisexual relationship or the love triangle. They'd all be around the children and how they're being raised and about the dog. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, man, those kids. Those kids will be crazy. Yeah. Yeah. I want to pick up again on what you guys are saying about the matter of factness of this. Because, again, when you compare this to, uh, like I said, the kitchen sink, you know, British dramas of a decade earlier, films like Victim for example, which is about, you know, a closeted gay man who gets involved in a blackmail scheme. You know, there's there's no point at which they really try to make it seem like there's anything dodgy about, uh, you know, Alex or, da- I mean, or, Bob, or Bob or Daniel. Um, you know, they, they're just kind of are who they are and they love who they love. And yes, you know, Daniel is closeted and, and Bob is, is not. But, you know, it's it's fine. And they, they kiss openly, they embrace openly, all that kind of stuff, you know, compared to what was going on in, in cinema at that time, still feels kind of like, uh, kind of radical. 
But yes, the kids. Can we talk about the kids? <laughs> oh yeah, go ahead. Before we before we move on to the kids, I will say the sequence with the cop in the street made me feel that in a in a very unstated sort of way. Sure. That yeah. there was just that that low key interaction. The same way you can have a film about people of color, and if there's a cop in the scene, the tone changes. Even if the cop doesn't do anything untoward, even if there's you know nothing criminal going on, there's just sort of that awareness of tension Mm -hmm. and the the business with uh the doctor's ex-lover and the policeman's presence i think just kind of sparkles with the understanding that if the wrong thing is said or done uh, the whole situation could just go south very rapidly and i mean there are other reasons for that given that the the ex is coded as a an addict uh, who's looking for a fix but I think there's also just the the certainty that if he decides to blow up the doctor's life with a, a policeman as a weapon, he could. Yeah, the the uh, it, it's pretty clear that the cop kind of knows what's going on, and so it really is a question of what uh, Daniel chooses to say in that moment is going to determine what the cop chooses to do next. So yeah, definitely, I agree with that. So what do you think? I mean, I mentioned in the um, keynote a little bit, but what do you think of this film in comparison to Midnight Cowboy? Because it does it feel like a companion piece to you or does it does it feel like an attempt on Schlesinger's part to kind of answer some of the criticisms of that film with regard to the queer behavior, lifestyle, really not even behavior, almost like the, you know, the self image. I will say that stylistically, I definitely picked up on some of those Midnight Cowboy vibes, especially when it comes to the characters kind of ruminating about their past or about, you know, mm-hmm. trying to figure out, you know, um, who they are, what's going on. I mean, that's very much in, in line with Joe, with Joe Buck and Midnight Cowboy thinking back to his life back in Texas. And, uh, but and Midnight Cowboy totally. is more kind of, it's kind of kaleidoscopic and more of a barrage of images. And here I think it's more of a, not conventional, but closer to conventional in the way the flashbacks are structured. They're a little bit, a little bit, the scene, the, the images in the scenes are a little bit longer and strung together in a way that kind of fills in the gaps as to, as to who these, uh, these two people are. Yeah. I think, you know, I, I, I was not really you know, terribly aware of any kind of, um, you know, backlash to Midnight Cowboy in terms of its depiction of of, of queerness. I mean, obviously, you know, it, it's weird <laughs> in that sense. I mean, it's 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 uh, yeah. yeah, it's not uh, you know totally accepting. Uh, which, but you know, but John Schlesinger was gay, so I I, um, I guess I always sort of assumed that it, it is what it is. Um, so I didn't really see that necessarily as a direct response to that. But I'm I'm, I'm curious. I mean, was there anything in particular that you wanted to point to that was written about or said about the film at the time that you think he might be responding to? Well, I think about I think about a a scene like Joe Buck in the in the theater where 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 he you know he offers fellatio and does not get paid for it, and it's like one of those you know I mean his entire life in New York ends up being full of a lot of sort of humiliating incidents, uh, which it, to me is not really I mean that's just the character you know to me it's my my think, thinking is like that is just his situ- this character in a situation this naive guy with no with no money and no good plan and and doesn't know what to doesn't is choosing you know the fact that he's a a big strapping handsome dude he can kind of make do on that i mean i i I didn't i i don't have a problem with that but i I, but i believe it was a thought at the time that schlesinger felt like he needed to at least show a different side of of queerness than he showed in midnight cowboy that he was going to show something a little bit more 
nuanced, uh, something obviously a little more personal, uh, given that given that he is, you know, uh, I think more of a Peter Finch type than a <laughs> than a John mm-hmm. Voight type. Mm-hmm. Um, so, uh, but it's interesting to think of the two in comparison, not just not just for that, but also the style and the evolution of style, because uh, the flashbacks are absolutely, I mean, they're not as radically um, used in in uh, Sunday Bloody Sunday as they are in Night Cowboy, but they're used in very much the same way as like these associative cuts where it's like okay we're gonna we're gonna go from this moment that is just you know like any like any of us in our lives if we, it's like this proustian thing where it's like you just you, you're in a situation like a like in this case a, a bar mitzvah and then you you're you're flashing back on on something you know uh, from your own experience in that at, at a bar mitzvah as well and so it, it all uh kind of comes together in a way that seems seems pretty pretty natural so those two things kind of came together but this is definitely a different type of of movie not even really as radical in terms of the editing of it as uh, a film like darling which he which he'd done which was uh, a little more arted up as well i mean for me the the difference between those two movies in terms of how they address queerness is comes from less from the reactive quality and more from the fact that they're just you know very very different settings and ideas one is about you know a young man on the make and another one is uh, about a couple of like more mature people in relationships one of them is a very urban very american film one of them is a very british film the degree to which everybody in sunday bloody sunday is just being very british about what they want and what they feel i think hangs heavily over it in a way that having a movie that's so centered on one protagonist and his experiences and his desires and how he feels free to express them uh just they're they're just they're radically different in terms of approach i think to some degree the connections come from both the interest in queerness and uh in you know telling queer stories in a very frank way at a time when that wasn't done and as you say kind of the the internality of the characters which is something that you don't always have the luxury for uh, in movies, you know, you don't always have a way to stop and get into what characters are thinking so much as what they're feeling or what they're doing. And the, the little flashback trick kind of gives him a way to tip you off to what people are not just experiencing in the moment, but how this moment resonates for them uh, through time. I, I think that you can see sort of the same tricks of a, a filmmaker, but at the same time, it's just there's such different stories because of like literally everything about them except the queerness. Yeah. Uh, let me talk about uh, Daniel and Alex for a second, because I think one of the challenges here is to make them, you know, seem lonely and maybe even a little desperate while also giving them some dignity too. Do you, do you feel like the film pulls that off? Or is that a, a fair characterization of what the film is trying to do? I don't know if I feel that that's the primary thing the film tr- is trying to do. I do think that they get some dignity in that Alex has another relationship, a relationship that hasn't been around as long and maybe isn't as meaningful, but kind of shows that she is not obsessive. She's not hung up on, she misses Bob. She likes Bob, maybe loves Bob, but she's not obsessed with him in a way that makes her follow him around in a way that would be, you know, hurtful to them both. And in a movie particularly would signal that she's too clingy. 
Dr. Hirsch doesn't have the same kind of relationships, but he does have, you know, he's very clearly part of a community. Uh, he has religion. He has his job. He has a bunch of people who depend on him. We pretty clearly get an indication that he has random hookups sometimes. So I, I think the process of just showing how much of a life both of these people have outside of their relationship with Bob becomes a really important part of the story. And it, it lends itself to that, uh, you know, multi-protagonist feeling where this isn't just Bob's story, but it, it isn't anybody else's story either. Yeah, I'd agree with that. I, I, I don't think it makes either of them seem pathetic. I think, you know, desperate maybe a little. I, I think there is sort of a, a romanticism that both of them attach to to Bob. I mean, you know, they I think he represents something to them. I mean, he's definitely he's definitely different uh, to Daniel than just some random drug addict that he picks up off the street. I mean, he's you know you know Bob makes him one of his beautiful sculptures and puts it in his yard. You know, um, uh, they have uh, uh, some you know connection that's 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 beyond just uh, the, just sex. And I think the same is true for for Alex. I think the comparison between her relationship with Bob and then that fling she has with her former coworker, who's more age appropriate. I think there's something about, it's not just about um, Bob being beautiful, but I think he's, he's young. You know, we see him all the time in the context of uh, his, his friends, his clan. Um, and I think that there's something about that that is attractive to her, the sense that she's not, she's not moving into old age yet. She's not moving past, you know, um, middle age into being a settled person that she's still young and adventurous, you know, like Bob is. And so having him around connects her to that. So, um, so again, I, but there, I think the movie does a fine job of shaping the reasons why they're with him, you know, beyond just sex that it's, 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 it's meaningful. Yeah, he also, I mean, his his ability to hang, I, I did steer away from talking about the kids because I wanted to finish the thought we were on, but now I'm steering back towards <laughs> the, the kids. The kids are getting neglected. <laughs> again, again. God, so many, uh, so many layers to that. His ability to hang with the kids and entertain them and just kind of like, like be a very active part of that scene and, and seemingly not a resentful part of it. Like he's... A hundred percent there uh, for his friend's children and for this sort of weird weekend away date slash live in babysitter thing that they're doing. (laughs) He runs off to see his other lover, but there's just there's never a sense that he's tired of taking care of the children or that he thinks it's her responsibility to do it uh, because she's a, a woman. He just feels amiable about the things that he's called on to do. And when he's with the doctor, his his interest in <laughs> the way he kind of comes in, uh, kisses his lover hello, and then just just immediately like I need to run out to the backyard and and play with my sculpture and make plans for America, feels maybe a little less committed in some ways. But there's just not really a feeling that he's he's a random gad about or that he's on the make, you know, that he's just looking uh, to pick up more people in his collection he he just happens to be polyamorous he just happens to be like involved with two people again i'm not sure i would say in love i think uh roger ebert kind of like pulled this apart in terms of whether this movie is about like love or the absence of love and i i think it's certainly a very complicated story about navigating what love can give you versus all of the things that it can't give you and how much love 
sort of covers over other holes or flaws in a relationship. But one way or the other, he seems to authentically care both for both of these people and just for all of the accoutrements in uh, in their lives. And the only time we see him just completely peace out is uh, when when Daniel's friends are being total jackasses at a party and he just doesn't see any need for him to be there. Yeah, that's kind of a he's a fascinating character because it's because I think, you know, I mean, I guess you could probably you could read him as shallow or insensitive in certain respects, but I also feel like there's a a a, a kind of straightforwardness to these to to the relationships that he's entered the that he's entered into here, like you know, like that line about about you know how he knows that he's can't be all that Daniel wants him to be, but you know, so this is what kind of what he's got, what he's going to get, and it's like the terms of the these relationships have has been something that Bob has set, I think, pretty well. You know, which of course doesn't mean that Daniel and Alex don't have you know strong feelings for him because that those are present as reserved as this, as this movie is it is called sunday bloody sunday it is a film you know it's not about the troubles but it is about people who are troubled in that sense you know and, I, and there's a there's a little outburst when uh where daniel is, is planning had, had planned a a trip that uh, he feels like bob never intended to go on so there there's some real emotion there but but uh but bob is inter- is interesting to me because i don't feel like there's i don't feel like he's manipulating them or 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 giving them or promising them more than he he's going to deliver it feels like he's kind of set the terms properly am i am i wrong about that um no i, I think if there's one kind of uh, central flaw to this film it would be that that bob is a little bit of a cipher um you know he's mm-hmm. he's he's interesting in his you know uh his art um and his sort of general kind of you know, the way he is so kind of effortlessly lives in the world that's, that's so attractive, but we don't really find that a whole lot about him. You know, we don't get Bob flashbacks, you know, we don't have like long impressionistic right. scenes where we find out what his whole deal is, you know? Um, and I, I think that's intentional. I think the idea is that he's supposed to be sort of representative of something a little, you know, that, that we can kind of fill in on behalf of the other two characters. So that's fine, but um, but yeah, I I do think that that there is a little bit of a hole there by by not having compared to like other films about love triangles, like one we're going to talk about you know next week. I think that not having him be as strong as a, a strong and well defined the character as the other two, you know, it's something's missing there. I think one of the ways the film defines him, though, that it doesn't define the other two is he really he he never holds forth about his art. He never tells us expressly what it means to him, at least not the way Daniel uh, talks about what things mean to him at the end of the film by looking directly into the camera and just <laughs> delivering a, lo- a monologue. I, after watching the end of that film, I had to go look up the uh, the, the famous montage somebody cut together on YouTube that's just can't take my eyes off of you with like 150 some films where the the characters look directly into the camera because i just had to know if it was there and alas (laughs) it was not Mm. but the other two characters i think both are really disaffected with their jobs alex is ready to resign and and figuring out how she knows that she's not happy and she's ready for something more but she doesn't know what it is 
Daniel is perpetually frustrated with his patients and we see him struggling to maintain his composure with them and complaining to uh, Bob about them when, when none of them are present. But most of what we get about Bob in his profession is him working with other young people, him engaging, tinkering, like planning for the future. Like he really did, does seem to have a passion for what he does. And that's kind of the third lover in the mix. And, and the one that the other two don't have is he's got this side passion that ultimately takes him away from both of them. And they don't really have any equivalent. Neither of them are engaged with their jobs in the same kind of way. Neither of them get, get light or life from what they do professionally. So there, so we, we, we had promised uh, to talk about the children. <laughs> <laughs> Won't somebody please uh, talk about the children. Should you talk about these horrible Hobson children? Oh my god! <laughs> yeah, so I mean, I, it is it is a film that seems to actively dislike children. I mean, or, or just suspect that they just that they behave monstrously because they because I, I you you've almost never seen kids act this poorly. <laughs> I mean, I guess the question is, you know, what thematic purpose they serve? I mean, they they, they initially, I think, in the film, there's a whole sort of motif early on about miscommunication and distraction there's the whole mm. the whole like first 10 minutes there's like people are calling each other on the phone and and they're not answering and you have that sort of annoying ring ring sound kind of over the soundtrack to you know driving the viewer to distraction and then when she arrives at you know her friend's house and the kids are just constantly making noise the one has the little flute the other one is like banging on stuff Plus, they have some random friend who's writing a novel or something in the corner of the room. I mean, it's a, they're, they're, it's, <laughs> their friends are a lot. But then you, you find out, you know, throughout the course of the weekend they spend together, the kids talk about things like they smoke pot <laughs> in bed with uh, with with uh, uh, Alex and Bob. And then later on, they, they talk about how they they typically in the mornings will watch their parents take a bath together. There's a sense of like <laughs> it's a bohemian lifestyle that the parents are living and they clearly want the kids to kind of live life as though they're little adults. And, you know, I think thematically that pays off with the sequence where the oldest daughter uh, refuses to mind and runs after the dog and the dog runs into the street, mm. gets hit by a car, a bit truck. And she almost gets hit by a truck. And it's this sort of sense of everything, you know, it, it, there's, there's real stakes to this. It's not just like, aha, they're living life and, and, and experiencing what everybody else experiences like adults. I mean, that kid is legitimately, shook you know when the and rightly so mm -hmm. when her dog dies and when she almost dies and that also kind of kicks off the sequence of flashbacks that's the first like moment where we get a sort of long you know flashbacks for alex as well where she remembers her own childhood and her own kind of moments of awakening so the kids serve a thematic purpose but i think part of that purpose is not just to tell alex's story it's also i think to kind of create a, a a sense of the world that she's trying to be a part of, which is constantly the world of the bohemian, the world of the young uh, is filled with a lot of noise and a lot of distraction. And sort of a side note to all of that is professor Johns also a uh, part of a thruple. You know, he, he seems to live with them and vacation with them. They talk about him very fondly. It's very unclear to me whether they're just all in a relationship together or like they've taken him in, in some sort of, you know, patronage kind of uh, way because he's a you know, professor. Maybe he doesn't make much money. I don't know. 
there's something going on there that is just feels a lot more than like here's just a, a family friend. I mean, he's always around when the parents are around and he doesn't really say much of anything. He just kind of like smiles and gets on with his work. But it it does sort of feel like part and parcel of the whole thing. And that relationship and the way the kids are being brought up uh it feels maybe just like it's sort of a backdrop to this like open three-way bisexual relationship that's just you know the the stuff that we're doing isn't really all that far out there uh check out what this couple is doing with their free-range noise-making pot-smoking food-stealing <laughs> truck running out in front of kids free-range children <laughs> i like it <laughs> yeah, they remind me of the uh, of uh, Mr. Burns' uh, hippie parents in, uh, in in the Simpsons. Right? We tried everything. We tried nothing, and we're all we're all out of ideas. It's kind I, of I don't want to. Sort of you, you mean Ned? Ned Flanders? Oh, Ned. I'm sorry. Yes. I think that there's also an element in there regarding how Alex herself feels about children and whether she wants them. But I think I'm going to hold on to that idea until we get to connections with passages, because I yeah. think it's one of the one of the bigger things that these movies have in common besides the obvious is the the kind of sublimated idea of child rearing and, and childbearing and, you know, the longing for kids and somebody who doesn't have them. And I think Alex's, you know, a, a, another movie might make it a lot more obvious how Alex feels about kids. Here, I think her her feelings are presented as kind of complicated and not particularly surfacey and and vocal. Uh, but I I do think that that's a part of what the kids are there to kind of establish is her own relationship with uh, with not being a parent. Do there any other certain you know, other stylistic touches you know stand out for you like that? Do you like the use of like the phone the phone lines and the answering service? I thought that was kind of kind of clever. I mean, obviously, kind of like hitting on that communication theme, but but having having this this end of the line that that, that sort of ends up bringing Daniel and Alex together in a weird way. I mean, that's kind of fascinating, right? No, it's a big part of the trailer. Yeah, <laughs> the operator who can't pronounce anybody's name right, you know, um, yeah. and who also just very casually says, like, you know, oh, you're looking for him. He's probably over at this other guy's place. That's where he spends <laughs> a lot of his time. Maybe you should call him there, uh, which just you know causes causes Alex to fall back and laugh. It's it's not like she didn't know, but that whole uh, party line thing, it, just an, an interesting time in history for people knowing each other's business. <laughs> there are a lot of like, a, yeah. I think, you know, um, interesting ways that that motif is reinforced throughout the the film. There's the sequence where Daniel gets two copies of news of the world, I guess, and his neighbor gets two copies of the Sunday times and they have to exchange newspapers because they got the wrong ones. There's the whole thing where they're playing what looks to be sort of like a, a version of exquisite corpse slash mad libs where the kids are drawing parts of bodies and the next person over can't see what they've drawn and has to draw the next part of the body. That, that's a fun little game. There's they the play. big charades game. The charades game. Exactly. I mean, that, those, those are all sort of moments where people are like trying to communicate something in ways other than just saying what they mean. And so that seems to be sort of a, a, a something that threads through the film, whether that has anything beyond just sort of a general, uh, like I said, more of a motif than a theme I don't know, but I do find it interesting in you know to, to talk about this movie as being both very cinematic and very novelistic because you know Scott, you mentioned Penelope Gilliatt, who would go on from this 
uh, to spend basically most of the next 10 years as the other film critic for The New Yorker whenever Pauline Kael wasn't doing it. But uh, but prior to that, mm-hmm. had been, a, as you mentioned, a novelist and a short story writer. And those qualities are clearly what, what you know, Schlesinger was looking for. Um, you know, for this film is to make something that is that feels like like a little modern novel, but done in a way that actually is visual and not not all based on dialogue. Part of that, uh, the visual element is just us getting up close and personal inside the mechanics of a, a switchboard phone system, which I, I kind of feel like the whole phone motif is maybe a little overdone, given the amount of time we watch people dialing or hitting. I, apparently, there's a sort of stop ringing, I'm just not picking up button on old rotary phones that I was not aware of uh, and the business with sometimes you're hearing ringing happening like oh, as a, a lead into an upcoming scene, like over a scene in which a phone doesn't appear or, or whatever. And then, you know, all the way up almost to the end, the motif of people trying to connect and failing to connect. I, there were points where I was like, okay, we get it, John, we, we, we see the motif. We're fine. <laughs> but the fact that we get to see inside uh, the, the switchboards, just with all of these little bits and bobs like clicking and connecting and like the complicated machinery of just people trying to talk to each other both feels really telling and like I don't know uh, Noel I think you were the one that way back in the early AV club days uh, would talk about how films shot on location are time capsules you know even if even if the point of the movie isn't that a scene takes place in Times Square in the 1970s and that's it's just considered a backdrop it's still fascinating because you get to see what uh, that place looked like in the in the 1970s and it's very different visually and, and tonally and so forth and here in the same sort of way just climbing inside these machines and looking at them when Schlesinger is is basically just saying like look at all the look at the apparatus of communication and instead I'm saying oh my god how did somebody <laughs> invent this this is what it used to take for people to talk to each other on the phone I would totally watch so, a, a, a How Stuff Works uh, show, but set in like 1970. <laughs> Nothing but no, How sure. Stuff used How Stuff used to work. So, so give me give me that show on whatever channel has those shows. So to go back to the the to Penelope Juliet for a second. Uh, first of all, I have a, a, a trivia question for you, which is uh, who did she marry? Oh, I, I looked this up the other day. Um, uh, she was she dated Mike Nichols for a while, but that's not who she married. Uh-huh. That's not who she married. No. Uh, um, oh, I, I've, I've, I'm, I'm blanking. Who is it? Vincent Canby of the New York Times. Ah, Vincent that's right. Canby. That's right. Yeah. So two two critics, two a two critic household, just like yours, uh, Noel Murray. <laughs> Except that her uh, the, Wikipedia, uh, the Wikipedia, Wikipedia page for her kind of tosses off casually without explaining that she died of alcoholism. Which is a, a weird kind of button to oh. put on her on her you know personal life uh, section, uh, without going Oof. into any further detail. Well, so far we're fine on that end on my household, but uh, we'll see how it goes. <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, I, the other thing I would just say is I I was watching a film the other day called Heart of Stone. Uh, yeah, with I saw, Gal, I've seen it. A good good note, and it was like it, and and you compare that film to Sunday Blaze. <laughs> <laughs> and it's just it, it, the, and the thing is like you get so used to movies that really are are so plot directed where everything where everything that's said everything that's done with the camera you know every every beat is just is just about jamming the damn thing forward that when you encounter encounter a film like Sunday Blaze Sunday which which Juliet and Schlesinger jam with so much detail it's such a different experience it was such a it's kind of refreshing just to, to feel 
like you're in kind of a lived in movie. I mean, that's kind of one of its strengths is it, is it just, is, is that every scene seems suffused with detail, details of, of, of decor, of, of character, of, of psychology, of just a lot of like little touches that are not necessarily there to drive the story forward, but to kind of give us, you know, a sense of these characters in the world that they're in. And I, it's just so that, again, that kind of novelistic or even short story-ish quality, given, given the time frame of this movie, is a major, major strength. Yeah, uh, Heart of Stone, by contrast, is like set, set nowhere. And set no in. It's like it's, it has. It's, it really <laughs> yeah. has no no sense of the world at all beyond just the AI quality. That's a whole different thing to get into. But I know what you mean yeah. exactly. No, you're, no. you're 100. Yeah. Okay. Scott, when you were bringing up a trivia associated with this film, I actually thought you were going to bring up a, a completely different aspect. Which uh, do you did you run across the the little trivia bit about a famous actor who this was his first film? Oh oh yeah 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 yeah. Um shoot. Um. Daniel Day-Lewis? Daniel Day-Lewis is one of the kids uh, vandalizing cars, just dragging broken glass across them. You sure as hell do. You barely see the other two children's faces. Uh, they're only seen from a distance. But when we cut in close to see what they're doing, you know, that they, they literally have broken bottles that they're just dragging along the sides of cars. Uh, you get a pretty sharp close up of his face as one of the other kids calls him to come catch up. Um, and he, he brings his head up. He was 14 at the time. They apparently paid him two pounds to, uh, just run back and forth across that line of cars, scratching them up with glass. Uh, he says it was the best job he ever had, <laughs> but it is very visibly an extremely nascent Daniel Day Lewis. It's amazing. Oh man. Now I, now I need to go back and look on it. I can't deal with people scraping things across things in movies. It drives me nuts. I didn't look. I didn't look at the screens. I wouldn't have recognized him if I'd seen him. I mean, <laughs> you might not have. He's he's wearing a very Beatlesy like bull haircut that conceals most of his face, and also he's fourteen years old and he looks about I don't know twelve. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. Still, neat little detail. So we kind of well, well, there's kind of one pretty interesting sequence here, both from a stylistic and a kind of a psychological perspective here uh where daniel goes to a bar mitzvah which of course causes him to reflect on his own bar mitzvah and then also <laughs> you know he's uh, set at a table next to <laughs> next to a prospective uh romantic partner uh of the opposite gender which is uh not gonna really work for him uh i was curious what your thoughts were on that whole uh sequence that was one of the sequences that I felt went on a little too long and maybe because it, it really is Schlesinger reflecting some of his own experience and things that touch him deeply and, and that he wants to reflect. I thought that the the bits where Daniel is like flashing back to his own childhood and just very visibly relating himself uh, to this young kid were moving and and interesting. I think in the exact same way as looking at the the mechanics of old phones is interesting, just like being present in this worship service and kind of seeing the details of it was interesting. I also think it's just really telling about Daniel, that that moment when someone, it might be the rabbi, I, I can't remember now, but someone asks him how he's doing with real warmth and real concern and just like a very obvious trying to get him to open up, trying to get him to actually talk. And he says, just in the in the world's most distracted automatic way oh i'm fine and the man who asked the question like just kind of gives him a look for a second that just feels very 
but are you though? It's it it's just a, a feeling of uh, I don't know. One of the analysis I was looking at uh, suggests that that whole sequence is about like the repression of a, a Judaic upbringing, which is not something I necessarily felt in the scene or feel necessarily qualified to judge. But that one little exchange just really had like put fish hooks in my skin in a way a handful of other things in this movie did, because it's just a moment of, as with so many other places in this movie, as, as Noel pointed out, somebody's trying to connect. Somebody's trying to, to have a, a real conversation and I don't think Daniel refuses it so much as he misses it. His attention is elsewhere, and he doesn't see that this is a sincere question rather than a, a rote automatic one. So he gives the rote automatic answer and I think just misses a moment that could have been meaningful. So we have, we're going to have a lot more to talk about. These films do connect up in interesting ways, but uh, we'll hold off on that until next week and move on to feedback. Now it's time for feedback, but before we get to it, we want to shout out Film Spotting, the Next Picture Show's Mothership podcast hosted by Adam Kempinar and Josh Larson. As we record this, Adam and Josh's most recent episode gets into the sleeper hit horror movie Talk to Me and kicks off a new series on African cinema with Egyptian director Youssef Shaheen's 1958 film Cairo Station. You can find them at filmspotting.net. As for feedback, we had a couple of responses to our recent episode on Barbie which we'd paired with Enchanted. The first is a voicemail from a listener who wanted to highlight an element of Barbie that went under-discussed in that episode. Hey, guys. Uh, my name is Kip Vandenhubel. I'm calling from Los Angeles, California. And I just wanted to call in response to your request for feedback for your Barbie episode. Again, always such a great uh, series of conversations. Um, my, my comment that I want to share about Barbie is I just, I just feel like as wonderful as that film is, not enough can be said about Margot Robbie's extraordinary performance. It's not as flashy as Ryan Gosling's or oh, Kate McKinnon's or so many of the other brilliant, hilarious performances. We expect her to be this. She's, she's kind of the, the axle that the entire film spins on, but she carries it with completely guilelessly with such beautiful innocence I keep thinking about all the other aspects, but keep drifting back to the gravitational pull of what Ms. Robbie did throughout the entire film and some of the biggest emotional responses that me and my wife and my daughter all had to it uh, centered around her just really seeing the people around her and her earnestness. And that's a really hard thing to play. So I, I just wanted to highlight that. I felt like Obviously, in Barbie, there's so many things to talk about and so many uh, hilarious and surprising things uh, and brilliant performances, but I didn't want to see uh, that money left on the table. First of all, Noel, have you seen uh, Barbie? Yeah, I went and saw it last weekend, as a matter of fact. What did you like, Barbie? And also, uh, what do you think of uh, Margot Robbie? Good? In the in the in the in the film, very good. <laughs> and and uh, I'll point to one moment in that film in particular that stood out. It's the one people keep pointing to as a, as a clever joke where they say, you know, if you want to make the point that, you know, that Barbie, uh, when Barbie is saying, I don't feel attractive anymore, and, and the narrator steps in and says, you know, if you're going to make that point, then don't cast Margot Robbie in this film. But her performance in that scene is really playing that emotion. She's really playing that sense of 
she really does feel lost. Like she's not somebody. And, and, you know, the contrast between the narrator saying that and what Margot Robbie is playing to me is one of the best moments in the film. So, I mean, it's a very complicated performance to be both surfacey and also try to indicate what's below the surface and bubbling up. Um, so I, I, I agree that I, I, I don't think it's not being talked about. I think everyone's talking about her performance along with everybody else's, but it's, it's definitely worth a, a second wave of celebration. Go Margot Robbie. Yeah. I also think in a in a way it's just not as surprising as I mean Kate McKinnon is not necessarily surprising as Weird Barbie. She's doing the thing she does. But a lot of the centering the story on Ryan Gosling as Ken is about just surprise at seeing him do this role. Whereas Margot, I think we've seen her do, you know, big bright kind of like over the top, like almost crazed, uh, cheerful characters who have like nuance and, and feeling below all of that multiple times now. And here, I feel like we're we're definitely taking her for granted. Like, I, I feel that this voicemail is exactly right about she's not getting enough of the attention. But to, to some degree, it, it's just kind of like, oh, you know, actor that we all like turned in another awesome performance doing mm-hmm. that thing we all like to see her do. Mm-hmm. And uh, damn, maybe maybe it does get uh, taken for granted because it's just like as as expected. She she kind of disappears into this role and, and plays it exactly the way it needs to be played. But it's so core to the film that talking about it kind of feels like, you know, saying congratulations to uh, Greta Gerwig. She shot this movie with a camera. <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, she, you, you know, Robbie's sort of the the out of the box Barbie. She's the stere- <laughs> she's the stereotypical Barbie. Like if you were to, you know, who else do you cast? Like she's she's the right person for the role. But there is, as Noel said, it's it's there's a there's an arc to this character, you know, who at the beginning, uh, you know, her life is extremely uncomplicated and repetitive, but but happy, and 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 she has to make discoveries. She has assumptions uh, that she's made about the the real world that are totally upended. Um, and she has to kind of bring a certain amount of spirit and change back to Barbie land and, and all of those, that's a, tra- that's a huge transition and, and it's almost like a Pinocchio thing. It's like, she kind of has to become a real boy in a way. Like there's uh she has to kind of develop qualities and dimensions that she didn't have before. And, and I think that's a, ch- that's a challenge as a performance, a subtle thing that she has to do. And it's something obviously she does extremely well. So thank you, Kevin, for that voicemail. Let me just uh, throw throw out a, I don't know if this is a pour one out situation or a, a raise the glass situation or, or what, but let me just praise the moment where she uh, gets so depressed that she just falls down face down on the, the ground and refuses to move and looks exactly <laughs> like a discarded Barbie doll. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah, it's a it's a clever movie. So next we have an email from Jenny who brings up Ken in Toy Story 3 in connection to Ken in Barbie. The original email, I should say, had shortened Ken and Barbie to something like to our Ken and Toy Story 2 to uh, TS3K or something like that, which I really liked, <laughs> but I thought would be confusing to to listeners. So I'm going to just have you have to say it the whole title out loud. So, uh, Tosh, you want to read that for us? Sure thing. I listened to your episode on Barbie last night, and I happily endorse it all. I had hoped when I finally wrote in, it would be to say something witty, deep, and so insightful that you'd ask me to guest host a panel. But alas, I'll have to settle for this. While discussing Toy Story 3 with some friends today, I made a comment that Toy Story 3 Ken strut walked so that Ryan Gosling could fly. And I realized I completely cribbed that from your episode's repetitions of Enchanted Walked So Barbie Could Fly. 
But I don't recall if you guys actually shouted out the Toy Story 3 version of Ken. Maybe you just ran out of time, though for what it's worth, I would have gladly taken another hour. There are some differences. Toy Story 3 Ken clearly had a life before and without Barbie as a henchman for Lotso, while Barbie Ken, as you talked about, didn't exist without Barbie. But both Kens are fashion-obsessed himbos who, to quote the episode, stand out in the story, and are also, quote, big and bold and broad and dumb parodies of masculinity, unquote. Harry Styles would also wear anything Toy Story 3 Ken wore in the movie. And I also think of Toy Story 3 Ken citing specific pieces, not the Nehru, still makes me laugh, as being akin to the clothing freeze frames. This connection is still half-baked, but I thought it was worth mentioning. <laughs> yeah, I, I, it, it, it's, I'm glad the connection was made because I, I didn't make it in my head. We were talking when we were talking about movies that we could pair with Barbie. We mentioned Toy Story two because it was so much about kind of like uh, growing up and you know and and thinking about life differently and and uh, you know and and basically the toys themselves being discarded and having to deal with that kind of loss. But I forgot that Ken is a presence in the series. Yeah, I had completely forgotten the uh, the Barbie Ken presence in the Toy Story movies as well. It's funny, we we talked about doing a Toy Story movie because of that thematic resonance and also just because of the the whole idea of people's connection with their toys, the, um, the emotional connection with their toys and what it brings to the toys themselves. But it had just not occurred to me to look at it on a, a character-by-character basis. And I'd completely forgotten henchman Ken and Barbie's general presence in uh, in Toy Story. So yeah, thank you for calling that out. I, I think that's a really good point. And I think that it is telling how much uh, Toy Story 3 characterizes these characters in terms of uh, just kind of some of the same same big broad stereotypes and assumptions. Uh, you know, these are dolls with hollow plastic heads after all. Maybe there's only one way that people uh, can see them culturally. Yeah, and and I should also add to uh, what when Jenny was saying that she could listen to another hour. I thought we felt, I think we felt like we could go that another hour. Like that, that was, you know, Barbie recording Barbie. That was one of those episodes where it's like, you know, what I kind of underrated how much was going on in this movie. Like that, that was a really fun discussion. It was one of our longer episodes, and I think, and it could have definitely been longer. So, so kudos to uh, Greta Gerwig for adding to our uh, enriching our cultural conversation. So we always appreciate when our listeners share their thoughts and their recommendations. If you feel so inclined, we can feature your response on a future episode. To reach us, you can leave a short voicemail at 773-234-9730 or email us at comments at nextpictureshow.net. That's it for this episode of The Next Picture Show. In our next episode, we'll talk about Passages, another MMF love triangle with a slightly nastier bite. Look for that episode next Tuesday in your podcatcher of choice. For ad-free versions of the podcast and extra content, find us on Patreon at patreon.com slash nextpictureshow. You can find us at nextpictureshow.net and on X at nextpicturepod <laughs> if you want to keep track of when new episodes drop. Until next week, remember, don't let your friends try to hook you up with a wrong gendered partner at a bar mitzvah. <laughs>